You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good morning, radiotherapists, and welcome to this Sunday's edition of Radiotherapy. I am Dr. Doolittle, and of course you are listening to 3RRR. We've got gremlins in our system this morning, so if anything goes haywire, don't blame the panel beater, or me, or anyone in fact. It's gremlins. Hey, on today's show, we're covering everything from the sublime to the ridiculous, and you can decide which is which. First up, we have a special guest joining us shortly. Associate Professor Clara Gaff is the Director of Melbourne Genomics Health Alliance. Clara's going to explain where the genomics revolution is up to, how far off is the moment we can flip a genetic switch and give me a brain that actually works. Hmm, that would be nice. And on the panel this morning, we are joined by two beautiful people, Dr Capri, our trusty general practitioner and university lecturer, and the panel beater, our health sociologist and master of the microphones, because he controls all the buttons. He can shut me up any time he wants to. Now. And now, <laughs> says Capri. And between us, we're going to take a look at where a few things are up to, screening, bowel screening in particular. We're going to take a bit of a look at the history of snake oil salesmen. If we get time, we might touch on... I don't want to promise, actually, because we, we, we always say this and we never get time. So let's just, let's just keep it all up in the air. So stay tuned, pump up the volume, and prepare for a dose of radiotherapy on 3RRR. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case loving you. No pills gonna cure my ill. I got a bad case loving you. I can't resist seeing that. Uh, Capri, how are you, my friend? Very well, very well. What's news in the uh, rainy old world of uh, the southern suburbs where you drove up from? Yeah, no, we didn't get the, um, despite all the doom and gloom and predictions, it wasn't too bad down our way. I don't know what everyone else experienced up this end of town. But hey, before I take that on, because I do want to ask that question, panel beta, how are you, man? Jeez, I'm well. Good to see you. Jeez, Good I'm well. Good to see well. you all. Doctor, oh, Professor, oh, I almost called you Doctor. How embarrassing. Professor Clara, how are you? Good, thank you. Thanks for coming to the studio. It's a pleasure. Hey, just on that topic, you know, I was thinking, of, you know, on the topic of the weather. So, you know, as we all know, this is a totally question without notice. But, you know, the, um, of course, we had incredibly dire weather warnings, mm. including, you know, the senior forecaster getting on and looking scared as he gave a report saying things like, you know, one third of Australians have never seen flooding such as this. You know, and I, I honestly was, you know, starting to look for the ark. You know, I saw we were back to that. Two and by two. Course, and then, of course, by Friday and Saturday, people are texting photos of puddles on the ground saying, we will rebuild and all that sort of just making fun of it. You know, and do you think that whether people are damned if they do, damned if they don't? Totally. Yeah. What if they hadn't warned us and then there was all the, you know, there was some sort of major disaster then? Of course they would have been damned. So, yeah, I think it's better to overcall it. And in the end, none of us were damned. No. Nothing was damned. Oh, well done. <laughs> boom, boom. Boom, boom, tish. <laughs> yeah, no pun intended when I use that. Like, but, yeah, it was a bit of a... Anyway, there was just a question without notice. Can I do another question without notice before we get into the serious stuff? I think we didn't do... Um, well, actually, we'll interview. With, we'll do our interview with Clara first. Production on the run, and uh, but before we do, um, the panel beater just flicked me something about four minutes ago, and it was really cool. So we thought we might just have a quick little chat about it. You might have seen it in the news. I'll, do you want me to? Do you want to introduce it, panel beater? Yeah. So I was just um, bouncing around the web 
last night, as you do when you're living the rock and roll life. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Wow. Yeah. Wait a second. Yeah. I went to bed early, so I didn't even bounce around the web. <laughs> Actually, I was at my uncle's happy 70th birthday. Happy 70th birthday, Uncle Brian. Oh, happy birthday. And I came across a, an article, um, I think initially published in the Journal of New England Medicine, and... Um, it was talking about a 70-year-old patient who arrived into A&R, I think it was in Miami, and he had a, uh, a neck tattoo and, um, and he was also known to the hospital staff with a bit of medical history, but the neck tattoo read, do not resuscitate, and even was accompanied by a tattooed attempt to sign his name. So there was a signature thing. And it, this put the, um, the, the medical staff into a, 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 a you know, not overly stressful bind because I think they were always going to act on it anyway but it it raised a moment of reflection about to what extent um, do you recognise things that aren't necessarily the written testament or or end of life type um, documents and so on um, so they did act on it, um, but they called in ethics. They had um, uh, a range of discussions um, and, uh, yeah, and took it from there. It was fascinating to have it even um, acknowledged in that journal as well. What would you have done, uh, do you reckon, uh, Capri? Oh, I already had oh, a look, chance I to think, think about it. I want to catch you on the hop. Yeah, no, I think that you'd have to uh, resuscitate and, and rev- rev- as they did. Obviously, they acted um, based on the, the, you know, first do no harm uh, and then sort of bring in the experts and decide whether that's the right thing to do. I'd argue that it's not his signature. He hasn't signed it. Yeah, right. Uh, someone else has actually... Done the signing, <laughs> and so also could have done the under duress. <laughs> the other thing that crossed my mind too. Well, two things crossed my mind. One, you know, it could you could be misinterpreting it. It could be that you know it's his favourite punk band called sure. Do Not Resuscitate. <laughs> you know, and they play great songs like Heart Attack, Don't Resuscitate, or whatever. But also, it struck me it's not witnessed. You know, normally we have to have any legal true. document witnessed. Yes, mm. that's true. And also, uh, how many people regret... Well, some people regret their tattoos. Oh, so. my neck tattoo. <laughs> my neck tattoo causes me no end of embarrassment. Yeah. Uh, the number of times I've turned up on a Tinder date and they've walked away. <laughs> you mean that tattoo that says cut across here? Yeah. <laughs> cut across the dotted line. Um, oh, dear. So what they did was they called in the ethicists and the ethicists came along and had a good look at it and said, look, in actual fact, I think we think we sometimes tend to stand on too much ceremony... And it is clearly a do not resuscitate sign. He's attempted a signature. We think you should um, follow it. Mm, yeah. So, yeah. That's pretty cool, isn't it, mm. that they made that call? I think, you know, it's quite brave. Did you say the summary of what happened, in, though, in the end? No, go on. Because it was a cat, you know, in the end. So they decided to withdraw treatment because this was going on. He'd come in unconscious and with a high alcohol level and um, some heart problems and some lung problems. And uh, so there was no super rush. They were doing this all over the course of, it sounded like, about 12, 24 hours. Um, and uh, anyway, so they made the decision with the ethics group to um, respect his um, tattoo. And so they started withdrawing treatment and they continued trying to find family and anyone who could corroborate whether this tattoo reflected his wishes. And it turned out he had signed a legal do not mm. resuscitate form in another state. Right. And they um, got a copy of that and, it's, and then they felt very comfortable withdrawing because it clearly matched his... Um, but if they hadn't found that like, we don't know what they would have done. No, well, they, no, they, we do because they were in the process of withdrawing treatment. Oh, sorry, they had pardon. decided okay. by then. Right, they had decided so it just by made then them feel to better yeah. about their decision. Yeah, so they treated whilst they were um, 
whilst they were in, you know, investigating further, which I, I would have thought is totally the right thing to yeah. do. They copped a bit of um, flack in the media. I had a look at some of the media coverage and some people said, oh, you know, it's paternalistic. And, you know, no, normally I'm totally anti-paternalism. But in this case, uh, you know, because it's irreversible, if you make that decision and then, you know, his kids turn up and say, yeah, it was his favourite punk rock band, what, yeah. made, you, what yeah. made you think, you know, I, I think buying time whilst to investigate is not an unreasonable thing. Yeah, exactly. And if you did take the advice of anything that you might come across on a tattoo, you might end up in all sorts of situations. Mm, yeah. Mm. Now, let me introduce um, Clara. Um, Associate Professor Clara Gaff is the Director of Melbourne Genomics Health Alliance, often just called Melbourne Genomics, but I'm being nice and formal, which brings together 10 leading organisations to overcome the challenges of integrating genomics into everyday healthcare in Victoria. Clara has been involved in the use of genetics and genomics in healthcare throughout her career in various roles, including counselling, management of genetic services, health professional education, strategic development in Australia and in the United Kingdom. Every ch- I love chucking that in. just gives everything an international flavour. It gives radiotherapy an international flavour. And uh, Clara has worked in public health, government, academic and not-for-profit sectors. So we were dead keen to get her in today to tell us a little bit about where genomics is up to and in particular, what's the difference between that and genetics? Anyway... Clara, how are you? I'm good, thank you. You must do this all the time, having to come and explain genetics to people like us. Well, I was a genetic counsellor, so I used to do it every day to people who are coming into genetic services. Not is that so how you got into this whole thing, as a genetic counsellor? That's right, yeah. I started out as a research scientist originally, and then after I did a PhD in the lab, moved into genetic counselling. I love it when we steal research scientists from Einstein and Gogo, the next show, <laughs> especially when Dr Shane's just outside the window staring at you with evil eyes. Um, so what did you do your PhD on? Was it in genetics? It was in genetics. It was uh, molecular genetics in, in immunology. So la- like lab-based control, stuff? Lab-based so stuff, what? looking at control of the way the antibodies were produced. So what made you jump the fence from um, microscopes to people? I realised I was much more interested in genetics generally rather than specifically one specific area. You know, in research you go way down in depth and I was interested broadly and also I was much more interested in human genetics than I was working on mice. Right, and right. So, and yeah, humans communication. more fun. Yeah, and the, the whole, I guess, psychosocial aspect, you know, the being able to move what was being learnt in laboratories across into healthcare and helping people understand, adjust to yeah. their circumstances. So, so what are you, when you're counselling, what are you counselling? People. <laughs> yeah, people. Not, okay. But so people that have a genetic condition or people that are concerned they may develop one in the future. So the two areas I worked in mostly, my first job was in prenatal diagnosis, mm. so where maybe something was found during an ultrasound that the baby had multiple problems and helping them, those people navigate their way through to hopefully finding more information out or learning what the cause of that might be and making decisions then about the future course of care. Uh, then I moved into genet- into cancer genetics, so that was much more people with lots of history of cancer in the family and was that likely to be an inherited form of cancer. Our people that had a family history and healthy and were worried about developing cancer in the future, so were there genetic tests that we could do? So you know, the Angelina Jolie, BRCA1, BRCA2 uh-huh. situation. So tell us, why are you using the term genomics instead of genetics? What's the difference? Why are you a genomics alliance and not a genetics alliance? Yeah, so these terms get used pretty loosely, Mm. but just as a general rule of thumb, you think of genetics, we tend to think think of single genes, like looking just at that gene, whereas genomics is much more all-encompassing, so looking at the entire 
genome or all of the genes. And have we only got to that recently? Because, I mean, I know with the human genomic project or whatever it was, you know, it took whatever, about 10 years and, you know, a billion dollars and about a thousand scientists in about 50 different countries to sequence one, I assume it was just one person's gene, (laughs) genome. So has that changed? That has changed. So part of what came out of that project and continued is huge technological advances. So whereas when I started, it would take three or four months to sequence a single gene, now it takes that long to do, clinically to do the entire genome Mm. or exome, which is all the genes within the genome, about 1% of that. And so that's been a big shift. And Along with that, the cost has come down. So in 2001, there was about $10 million to sequence one person's genome, and now it's just over 1000 And just as an so. aside, I was chatting to one of the scientists at work recently, and he's working on this thing where you just plug something into your phone that's a commercially available little thing, get your patient to whatever, spit on it or whatever you do, and um, <laughs> and it's basically a little sequencer that will look for specific things on your phone so general yeah. practitioners can have it in their office and potentially, you know, do genetic tests oh, on the run. That scares me. Yeah. That scares me a lot. Yeah. Um, uh, maybe we'll get into that in a minute because you probably... I, I do want to ask you a question just about that. But since you've we've uh, discovered the genome or we've established what it is, how has what has um, impact has that had on health and... Um so one of the reasons the Alliance exists is to help move what we've been learning in research across into healthcare because the kind of reaction you had, oh, that scares me, that's kind of reaction of a lot of clinicians, mm. I think, about genomic testing generally. This is big data, a lot of potential information. Uh, And so that's a process of change. And also we need to understand when this testing is best used in clinical Mm. practice. Mm. There can be lots of hype around genomics, like everybody should have this, this is going to revolutionise everything. In fact, in healthcare, probably there are some circumstances that it's worthwhile doing and others that aren't. And so what we're doing is working with members of the alliance, the researchers, the clinicians, bioinformaticians, medical scientists, to work out which patients are going to benefit and which patients it's maybe better to continue having the tests that they're already having. And do you have a sense of that yet? Who who are the patients who'd benefit? Yeah, we're looking at 16 different clinical indications or conditions, and we've got some of the results for some of those through already. So children, very young children particularly, that have got multiple um, abnormalities often that they've been born with or evident shortly after birth, we're finding a big difference in the um, in the diagnosis in those patients. So five times more patients uh, with those conditions are getting a diagnosis compared to standard testing. I guess the area that worries me is the sort of predictive type um, Mm. uh, knowledge where, um, and I'm thinking of Huntington's particularly um, because I have got a family that's affected by that and some who do want to know and some who don't Mm. and the implications um, of knowing in advance when there's not you can't do anything about it. And I think that's the area that, you know, obviously um, I'm most worried about. And obviously genetic counsellors are invaluable, but um, it is an area that I think needs to be carefully looked at before we just sort of start offering it to everybody. Yeah, there are some limitations to the information that this testing provides. So Huntington's disease specifically is actually one this testing can't pick up. But there are other conditions like breast cancer genes, bowel cancer genes, that you can look for changes that will cause um, 
bowel cancer, breast cancer and a range of other conditions as well. And this is one of the big ethical issues at the moment is should we be looking for that information or not? So for many, many years there have been clinical services for people that have got a family history to come in and see what the likelihood is, whether they can have a test. And obviously genetic counselling is a big part of that, looking at individual choices. Do people want to know this information and helping them prepare for what those results might mean? Whereas now we're in the situation where people are coming in, like those children, because they've got another condition, and you could also look for their cancer, look at their cancer genes. In Australia, and I think actually internationally, their view is that we shouldn't be looking for adult onset conditions in childhood, but there are also adults that are coming in that could all access that information and we're actually just starting a study now to look offering people that have had testing for clinical purposes for their own condition where we just analyze the the genes that cause that condition and seeing whether they want analysis of other genes as well i'm sorry i'm off lost so I should, yeah i just realized so i'm sort of leapt ahead of myself a bit so we can look when we do the testing we can look at all of the sequence almost yep. all of the genes and we do sequence almost all right. the genes, but we only analyse and really right. look at the meaning of uh, so the I genes related to the person's condition. So I might come in for a test to see whether I've got the BRCA gene for breast cancer and you might then say, well, while we're here, we've got, we've, we can sequence the whole um, genome we can also look whether you've got the gene to end up being winning a Nobel Prize. And so you... Okay, I'm not going to win a Nobel <laughs> Prize, and that's not an illness, although it should be. Um, but you can look for other things. And then you have to decide whether to tell me. So the, what, mm. the approach we've taken is actually sort of flipped around the other way. Yeah. So we've said, look, to make this manageable in healthcare, to help it make it manageable for clinicians, let's start by just looking at the genes for that person's condition. Yeah. So that might be the 200 genes that cause an immune condition. It might be the 12 genes that cause hereditary bowel cancer or the 60 yeah. genes, 200, whatever the number is, for cardiac disease. And that's all we'll look at because all we're interested in, like any other medical yep. test, you just do the test for the condition the person presents. And with. that's almost a golden rule in medicine. You don't test randomly because your first goal is to do no harm. And if you test randomly, you often find just minor things that don't mean much that cause anxiety, stress, and people have more tests then, and every test has complications. Mm. So it's a minefield. So we genuinely try and teach medical students only test for things that have a high probability. Precisely. Mm. So what the Americans have done is put together, the College of Medical Genetics in America have put together a list of about 56 genes, 35 conditions that they're saying... Even if the person's presenting for some other reason, you should look for these genes as well. And so they're cancer genes, cardiac disease genes, for example. That's not been something everybody's taken up around Mm. the world. And across Australia, it looks like different places have got slightly different practices. And there's lots of implications of that. Well, funnily enough, we're talking about screening in our next segment. Yeah, isn't it a limitation that just because you have the genes, it doesn't mean you're going to get the disease and... Or and it's not predictive of the severity of if you do get it, the severity or when you're going to get it. So to me, it's like a big Pandora's box. And obviously, uh, that's probably out of ignorance, but it just seems like um, too much too soon. Yeah. So 
Absolutely. As a genetic counsellor, that's my starting point as well. But when people have been doing surveys around the world, and certainly everybody that comes in and participates in the Melbourne Genomics Program has testing through that, we ask, is this information you're interested in? And 70 to 80% of people say, yes, I'd like to know that. But at that point, it's a hypothetical decision. It's mm. not a true mm. decision. I'm in the 70 to 80%. As you were saying that, Capri, I was thinking to myself, no, I'd want to know. That, yeah. Um, but are you what, thinking what are you about the ramifications of that, though? Yeah, the ramifications. That's where my mind's going. Like, clearly, for the longest part of the history of this, it, science is what's driving it. You know, it's that curiosity. It's, you know, um, what can we know? And that's, a, you know, really pure motivation. Is there a shift where the drivers are insurance companies and the drivers are other motivations so that prospective employers want to know that their workforce is entering in and they're not going to whatever. Is is that emerging? Uh, I think in Australia that's the there's been issues around health insurance. Uh, no, sorry, not health insurance, um, life insurance, mm. income insurance. But health insurance is community rated, so unlike America, it's not an issue here. But certainly there was some publicity recently and concern that people that are healthy that are having testing to find out they do have an increased risk. And as Capri said, it might never happen, but insurance companies... Maybe then sort of blocking people having mm. insurance, and that that is problematic for them. It's part. There's a Senate inquiry at the moment. In that right. Area. Okay. So that in part goes to my next question. So, what is the status of governance over these sorts of things at the moment? Yeah. So th- there's been that. There's a couple of things. So one, there's been a Senate inquiry on insurance generally, and certainly genetic and insurance has been part of that. I think they're going to be reporting in March next year. And the national government have also just put out a national policy framework, national genomic health policy framework, I think it is, uh, that makes a big focus on ethical, legal, social issues and addressing those nationally. And there's certainly a lot of research going on. Um, Melbourne Genomics, there's also Australian Genomic Health Alliance, which Melbourne Genomics is a part of. That's all genetic services and researchers from around Australia working together in multiple areas and ethical issues, consent is part of that as well. Right. Oh, it's so interesting. You know, in my, you know, I've been around 30 odd years as a doctor now and, uh, you know, the big things, I mean, there's so many big things, transplants and stuff, but the real big things that have always struck me is the brain imaging. You know, we're starting to actually see what the brain mm-hmm. does. Um, genetics and... Um, probably HIV, if I think about it, you know, like the big revolutions in our era. And the genetics I've been following so closely, you know, there's been so many interesting twists and turns along the way. Um, But we're clearly, you know, still early days. And so I was wondering where, in particular, where we're up to with regard to genetic treatments. Because, of course, you know, early on it was just figuring out, oh, my God, what is this genome? What, what's the yeah. whole thing about? And it was, you know, that was the, the big project and figuring stuff out. And then there was papers coming out left, right and centre about this, that, and constantly overturning each other. Every couple of years, we'd, it had, you know, various findings would be overturned about, we found the gene for schizophrenia, now it's here, now it's there. Oops, it's actually multifactorial and we don't know where it is. And it had got, you know, there was that... But the promise the whole way... I remember listening to, to Dr Carl Kruzielinski. Is that how you pronounce it? I remember listening to him once saying... This was in about the late 90s, I think it was. And he said, oh, the way genetics is going, within the next 10 years, we'll probably be turning on genes to grow arms in people who have been had an amputated limb. And he said, and in our lifetime, we will have 
immortality. That's what he said. Now he's, you know, he was being, you know, he's so funny. And he, you know, so take, you know, he wasn't being completely serious. Where are we up to? Have we got genetic treatments yet? So there are two areas here. So there's cancer. So the changes that have occurred to make it a cancer, and there are certainly treatments uh, directed or can be used um, with personalised treatments based yep. on the person's... Personalised medicine. Yep. Exactly. So the changes that in that person's cancer can guide the treatment that they have. That's for very advanced cancers yeah. at the so moment. So they can do a genetic test on the cancer and say, you've got a cancer that's going to respond to treatment X instead of treatment Y. And yes. with melanoma, and it's just mind-blowing what what mm. that can what yeah. that means for patients now yeah and a lot of these are also at the clinical trial stage at the yep. moment mm. so one of our areas is looking at advanced cancer and people going into clinical trials on the basis of their genetic mm. test wow. the other area then is the genetics that we're born with genomic makeup that we're born with and i think when we started people saying well this will be good to get a diagnosis so that people have got a better understanding of what will happen in the future yep. make family planning decisions mm. and that's certainly been the case but to our surprise about about 30% of those children that I mentioned, I think 20% of the patients overall in our first 300 or so patients had a change in management of the ba- on the basis of those results. And some mm. of those were actually treatments and not even necessarily new experimental treatments, but riboflavin or vitamin B, things that already yep. exist, already are used, but now with but on the basis of the genomic results, they could see that this person would benefit and has had a response. And what happened in cystic fibrosis? Because cystic fibrosis, my understanding is there is actually a drug that um, corrects the genetic problem. I'm trying to remember it. I haven't worked. I worked in cystic a couple of years ago for a long time. Not so much corrects the the genetic problem itself, but can help manage the... Yeah, replaces, I think, some of the function yeah. and functionality. Or and that was one of the first, like, full-on... Because, you know, in what they do in cystic fibrosis, say... I'm trying to remember, it's a couple of years ago that I worked there. But, and if any of them are listening, apologies. I mean, <laughs> if the people I worked with, and if there's any people out there who have cystic fibrosis, even triple apologies that I might be getting this wrong. But I'll put something on our Facebook page to fix that. But my understanding was we were doing genetic tests. I was the shrink there, by the way, not one of the physicians. Don't worry. Thank goodness. Um, yes, <laughs> don't worry. And my understanding was they were doing genetic tests on all the people, and if they had a certain type um, genetic subtype of cystic fibrosis, they got this drug. Now, it was quite limited because oh, I forget what it was. It was like 150, 200 grand a year to be on mm, this drug. And expensive. so the government was limiting it only to people who had this specific gene. But it was considered an absolute amazing thing, mm. certainly four or five years ago when it was f- hitting. It's a good example of that. I think there are a thousand or so mutations or changes in the CF gene that cause cystic right. fibrosis. Mm. And I think that particular drug is only one or two of those changes. So people with one of those changes are yeah. eligible for that drug or that drug will treat. So it's very targeted to the particular fault that... Mm. But wouldn't we going. imagine this is just going to happen for more and more conditions that have a strong genetic makeup? Because by understanding the genetics, we understand the very first link in the biological chain that ends up with a person having an illness. Mm, and, yeah. you know, and it's through understanding the, biology, the biological processes that lead to that endpoint that opens up all the windows for treatment because, yeah. yeah. you know, yeah. any given illness probably has, I don't know, a thousand different biological steps to get there. And so that's now a thousand targets for treatment that open mm. up. I just mm. think it's so exciting. Mm. What, do, what do we all think? Are we excited? Where, where's, the, where's the funding? Yeah, exciting. Oh. I love the science of it. But um, maybe it's linked into that question of where are the drivers at the moment, um, but where's the money coming from and... So our funding has come from the Victorian State Government. They've put $25 million into the Melbourne Genomics Health Alliance and the member organisations have put in another $10 million. The Victorian State Government has also put, on the basis of the evidence that we've provided, an additional $8.3 million into hospitals and genetic services so that these tests can be part of clinical care for 
conditions where the evidence is there that it has value. And so we can, we'll continue to generate evidence so that more funding can Th- be That's really available. significant dollars, isn't it? It is. Yeah, that's, well, I was, that's like 45-odd million over how many years? Uh, the uh, for our programs four million uh, four years right. and I think right. that eight point three wow. million is over a four and then there's a national well. alliance and I also saw there was a Queensland one too when I was that's right so skimming around Queensland the Genomics Health Alliance also I think twenty four twenty five million there <sighs> as well so when when did serious money get involved how long ago are we talking is it obviously it's ten years or so since you know this was public kind of conversation about genetics and genome yeah, mapping? Yeah, so most of the funding has been over the last three years yeah, or right. so, and again, it represents that shift from a lot going on in research and a lot of thinking about what can be done and then this shift in focus, as you said, you know, from what's technology-driven to actually then how does this work in healthcare and thinking about the clinicians and uh, patients. Right. But and the, serious, the serious money began last century, obviously, with the... You know, human genomics project, with which I often say billion dollars, but I think that it was less than that. Wasn't yeah. it? it was hundreds of I think hundreds I was, and hundreds of millions. I can't remember. I was thinking more locally. Then oh, when did right. Australian money start getting to Australian researchers? Well, yeah. this has been the whole thing with pretty much all science in the last decade. I think that governments got to the point where they've really pushed what we call translation, translating from the bench to the person, mm-hmm. the be- you know, the um, lab to the person. And so there's so much emphasis now on translation, and there's so much money. And a lot of people think the new money that you know the MRFF will have an even stronger emphasis on translation because there's a sense I think in parts of the I don't think it's true to be honest but there's a sense um, that not enough we're not quick enough at moving things from the bench to the per, to the public, yeah, and certainly Australian genomics have twenty five million from the NHMRC as well, and certainly all these amounts sound like a large amount of money, but there's a huge amount of change to be done. It's not just mm. we have to like we have to change things in the laboratory yeah. or it's clinical interface. It's you know, in clinical care. It's also the information system so that we can share the information mm. rather than having silos because there's a lot we don't understand. And the big challenge at the moment actually is not doing the sequencing; it's making meaning of the information yes. that comes from yeah. the. Sequ- sequencing machine and that needs a lot of sharing of information and sharing of data. A potentially really naive question but seeing as we're talking about money it might be a moment to ask. Um, where, What's the most expensive aspect of this? Is it just paying the researchers and getting them in the lab and doing their work or is it the machine that goes bing that's really expensive? The, it's roughly speaking about half the cost is the the sequencing part of it like in an, in a single test half the cost is that machinery part of it and about half the cost is the people part of the people actually looking at the information that comes off the computer so it goes through a automated analysis process and then there's a manual looking at it and that's actually the bottleneck having the people with the expertise and dedicated time and yeah consistency to really do that manual part. It sort of strikes me, though, if you think of, say, radiology, you know, x-rays as an example, we started off with the machines and then over 100 years we figured out how to use them. Um, we <laughs> trained a whole workforce, the specialty of medicine, radio, radiologists, and then they all subspecialise. Now you go to a, you know, a neuroradiologist or, you know, bowel, ra- you know, they all subspecialise. We're going to need similar. to do exactly the same yep. with genomics. Yep. It'll become a very clinical similar. specialty very and etc. Yep. Hey, we're going to have to um, end this very interesting discussion, though. Associate Professor Clara Gaff, the Director of Melbourne Genomics Health Alliance, thank you so much for coming and explaining all that stuff. We've got to get you back because I just think this is such an evolving story. And, you know, it really, you know, it's, it is 
the next wave of human yes, evolution um, scientifically. So it's just so exciting and it's great to hear you explaining it with such clarity. Mm. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for being so interested. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We are going to talk next a little bit about screening. Mm. You've been uh, you've been flicking your flicking your fingers through the journals. No, I gather, I, no, uh, no. I actually went to a uh, a talk um, with Cancer Australia, and they were just promoting or uh, letting. Um, uh, primary health providers know about the latest um, on the two main uh, population screening things we have going primary in Primary health providers. That's what a long name. That's cheap. Yeah. yeah. No, no, not no. Is it, it's more? No, it's ED physician. No, oh, just right. people who are at the coalface. Coalface. Yeah. Right. Okay. Anyway, so um, they were we were talk- they talked about two main population based screening. Uh, um, things available in Victoria, one being bowel cancer screening and the other one, the new cervical cancer screening test, which we is not the pap smear anymore. It's a different test and Ooh. maybe I'll talk about that at the end because I really want to mainly talk about the um, bowel cancer screening test, which applies to every Australian rather than just women. We've got to do both then. You can't promise. You can't promise not to deliver. Oh, okay. I'll try. Okay. So before I launch into the new NH and MRC guidelines on bow- on the National Bowel Cancer Screening Program, I would just want to talk about what we mean by a screening program, just for those who aren't sure. So basically a screening program is offered to all individuals um, who are at risk of a particular disease. Um, it if it's determined that um, by picking something up early before it becomes symptomatic. So screening programs only apply or a screening test only applies to people who do not have a symptom or a sign of a disease. Um, because once you do, you don't have a screening test, you have a diagnostic test. Right. So it's very important that people are aware of that and I'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. So if you are in an at-risk group and basically that's based on your age and your gender. So for example, for bowel cancer, um, average risk is considered for anyone who's over the age of 50. There are other higher risk groups and and normal screening doesn't apply to that group. So most of us, anyone who's over the age of 50 is considered to be of average risk of having bowel cancer and it's this group that's being targeted by this population screening. And the idea is that if we pick something up early enough before you are symptomatic um, at at a point where you can actually treat the problem, then you avoid having uh, the risk of having cancer and therefore death potentially, or certainly having it at a point that it's treatable before it causes significant disease. So, for example, with bowel cancer, the idea is to pick it up at a very early stage before it spreads outside of the bowel or at a point where you've just got a adenoma, which is a polyp that is pre-malignant or may go on if it's left there for long enough, will become a cancer. So the idea is to pick it up at that stage. And we have a very effective way of, well, we have a, a pretty good way of doing it. I love the way you pull back on that. We have yeah. a very effective, yeah. well, well, it's not perfect, good. and that is is the thing with screening with screening programs it's not a perfect system yep. it relies on it being used in the in the appropriate way in the appropriate group of people um, and that group of people as I said are people of average risk and the government will pay for you to have a free test every two years will be sent out in the mail that's the poo test you the know, poo I, test. know I'm going to say this without any schoolboy humour which is hard for me yes but it is because I've had it twice now I've been sent it twice yes so they send you a little kit comes in a big envelope it's a cardboard box and it's really straightforward you open it up it's got like just three instructions put this bit of paper in the toilet have a poo rub this tester through it put it in the thing do it twice you know two poos in a row yep. and pop it in the mail it is so 
easy, it's not funny. Exactly. You know, it takes, it takes about four or five minutes to get your head around it. And, um... <laughs> oh, there we go. Then we were going to do it at school. We always came to it. It's incredibly course. easy to do. Yes. And then you get this letter in the mail a week later saying, uh, you know, all's cool not to worry. And well, not that's a, I mean, assume some people are positive and are told, get to your GP. And not only do you get it, but your GP gets it as oh, well. Oh, Right. So that's... that's a but this backup. is bloody expensive. So every Aussie in Australia over the age of 50 gets sent this. It must cost, I don't know, a couple of hundred bucks per person, uh, surely. I've forgotten. I saw a number of how much money. Uh, $95 million um, provided in the 2014 budget to accelerate the expansion. That's the only yeah. number. And the government, doesn't, the government doesn't introduce these tests unless they've done the maths and figured exactly. out in the long run it's cheaper to um, prevent than to treat. Okay. So the national the guidelines which uh, came out about a month ago are the first, uh, the, the newest ones and the first ones for over 10 years. And what it showed after a lot of scientific uh, analysis is that it's cost effective um, and also that there's that it is the best screening program. So it's it's held up uh, that no other form of uh, screening program is as reliable and it also supports that the age of screening is appropriate and, and as I said, the method is appropriate. Well, that's good. So, and by the way, just for, so people know, I forgot to mention this, um, the test is actually looking for microscopic yeah, amounts of blood in the poo. Is exactly, that basically Exactly. Because so tumours bleed early and you don't notice it until they've grown quite a bit until you actually see any changes. And so this picks it up on microscopic Exactly. Level. And given bowel cancer is, is the second most uh, common cancer to cause death um, and that 90% of these cancers, if they're picked up early enough with a test like this, are curable, then it's a really important test to do. Now, uh, Doodoodle says he's had it done twice. Sadly, that's not the take-up rate. Lots of people get it sent in the mail and if I ask people, if, because I know they've just had a birthday so they should have received one at 52 or 50 and they'll say, oh yeah, I chucked that out. Oh, that thing, yeah, I chucked it out. It's in the cupboard. You know, the used by date's gone. So many people don't actually um, take the test and it's a really important thing for for people to do and, and GPs are being encouraged to really push the, the agenda for people to have this done. I just want to remind you about the, the fact that it's a screening test. So if, let's say, a lot of people, what, well not a lot of people, but what some people I know are doing is they put it in the cupboard and then they're worried that they might have a symptom of bowel cancer and they'll do the test, comes back negative and they think, oh, that's good. Remember, it's only if you have no it's symptoms. Screening, not the screening. second yep. you have a symptom, you go to your doctor and you don't have a screening test, you have a diagnostic test, which is a colonoscopy. And on that point, the other guidelines, that the, the other thing... The MA- explain. I mean, I think everyone knows, but a colonoscopy is a camera on the end of a thin hose put up your um, backside, looking at basically looking at your whole bowel. So it looks, it finds anything there and then they can actually take a sample. And the other thing that was um, established is that colonoscopies are not a valid screening test for someone of average risk. One, because of the um, risks associated with it. Two, they're very expensive. And three, if you do have a positive poo test, those people need to have a colonoscopy within three months. And we're taking up those places um, for the people who need a colonoscopy rather than the worried well who are using it as a screening test. Um, They flip over to the... change in the cervical testing. Oh, I do want to mention aspirin quickly oh, okay. because the other Sorry. really important thing is that uh, after a long time the, uh, it's been the jury's in um, that aspirin is preventative for bowel cancer so they're recommending that people go and talk to their doctors about going on aspirin pr- as a preventative measure for bowel cancer. What That's age? A, uh, from the age of 50. It's not okay for everyone to do it just blindly on their own because there are some people who shouldn't be on aspirin right. for various reasons but it, it is now a recommendation.
recommendation, which is a big change, uh, a recent change, because it hasn't been established up until now that and it is, is actually... And is it low dose? Low dose, between 100 and 300 milligrams. It varies. You've got to be on it for more than two years for it to be valuable, and it's only after 10 years of being on it that it's actually gives you that protection. So, um, and they're recommending that everyone of average risk, so that's everyone over the age of 50 should consider it. Assuming there's no contraindication. Do that with your GP. So what's the cervical? You've got me. Okay. So so pap smears, we've only got about a minute, I'm sorry. Pap smears have been uh, reliable and our way of of, uh, detecting um, cervical cancer or the risk for cervical cancer early um, up until now. Now we've got a new test, which is one step back on that, that sort of cancer journey. So rather than picking up the abnormalities that you see on the cervix, now we're picking up the virus that causes the abnormalities. Uh So it's the HPV test, the human papillomavirus is um, is being um, looked for in the test. And therefore, if you don't have the human papillomavirus, then you can't get cervical cancer. How do you test for it? Uh, and sadly, it doesn't mean you don't have that uncomfortable speculum examination. It's the same thing, um, but it's uh, it's just a genetic test. Uh, just different the way it's dealt with in the lab, same the way it's sampled in so the lab. So you still doctors. do a pap smear? You it's not a pap smear, no. Right. Right. You do a you do a swab. It's called a, a thin prep. A vagina. Thin prep, a, vag- a cervical swab yep. uh, or sample, and it's put in a thin prep or a, a water-based device and it's sent off to the lab and they just deal with it differently. Is it just as uncomfortable as a pap smear? Same. Unfortunately, same. it's the same. It shouldn't be too uncomfortable if it's done well. And how often do you have to have it? Now it's every five years, as distinct from what it was every two years. Hey, so, I'm sorry to hurry you through all that. That's okay. That's okay. But, you know, we're an action-packed show on Radiotherapy on 3 Triple R. And we I spoke as s- fast as I could. Yeah, I know. I know. You <laughs> almost got up to my speed. I was pretty impressed, actually. Um, you know, because we just try and it's, – it's like a university lecture here. We're just pumping out the information. <laughs> 3 Triple R. Now, back to a bit of health. Back to a bit of health. <laughs> Panel beta. Fandlebeater, you've got some stuff that you've been reading. Snake oil salesman. Love it. Are you a fan of Westerns? I'm a fan of everything, especially, and I used to love those caravans. Yeah, that's right. So I think that's the image that comes to mind when you think of snake oil. It's it's probably a Western, or it it appeared in Huckleberry Finn, the travelling salesman. Pictures uh, comes in and into town and um, and tries to convince people to to buy their little ointment or their liniment or whatever it might elixir. be. Elixir, I like elixir, tonic. Ah, oh, tonic. I love a tonic. <laughs> a gin and tonic, especially. <laughs> and over time, you know, to call something, call someone a snake oil salesman, or call politicians a snake oil salesman, or something. You know, they're they're they, psychiatrists. I'll just call the snake oil salesman <laughs> yeah, about five thousand right. times. Yeah, the radiotherapy team. Yeah. Yep. Um, <laughs> The, you know, so you've got the um, that kind of conventional idea, but so I was I was interested in that aspect of things, and but then when I was looking into it, there's a little bit of interesting history for us mm. in in the in snake oils, uh, snake oil salesmen. So the big aspect of it is a link between traditional Chinese medicine that was um, you know thousands of years of arguably good scientific practice you know just keep repeating until something works um linked with the influx of the chinese to help build the uh, transcontinental railway in the united states and so that railway a massive massive project um imported quite literally um a huge number of chinese immigrants as as the main laborers for that and with the immigrants as is so often the immigrant story they brought a lot of a lot of things with them including this idea of snake oil 
Um, and the snake oil recipe that the Chinese used um, was one that was to directly address things like muscle soreness and even arthritis or sprains and strains, you know, perhaps the way we might think of using Denka rub or something like that mm. now. And so building, you know, a very labour-intensive um, uh, project like the Transcontinental Railway great market opportunity for those who could pull together the um, the snake oil. Um, so on that kind of level, there's a little bit of historical legitimacy to the idea. Of course, though, there's one great big flaw, and that being <laughs> that the sort of snakes that were used in mainland China were not available in right. <laughs> continental United States. And that's where the grand plan goes horribly wrong. Um, and the, an interesting character emerges, and his name is, I'll get this, um, it, Clark Stanley was his name, Clark Stanley. And I he, like um, that name. Yeah, I'd like to be Clark Stanley. Oh, that's so much, that's such a, it's such a it's, distinguished name. Ty, perfect. I'm Clark Stanley. <laughs> exactly. And People so, don't know my real name, but trust me, it's limp and weak not, and it's not Clark Stanley. Yeah, what's not him. to trust about Clark Stanley and his Stanley's snake oil, oh, right? Nice. So this is where the snake oil comes from. And Clark Stanley went by the nickname the Rattlesnake King, Right, so you've got our first clue of where he's getting his um, his snake oil from, um, and so Stanley would go and just as we know it from the movies and Huckleberry Finn and and whatever, um, town to town selling his selling his wares, and there was a really well known scheme or schematic for for. Clark Stanley to um to follow, so um, he'd do some advance advertising. You know, you'd find little things on leaflets or posters in town or whatever, um, letting people know that he was coming. He'd um he'd recruit a an offsider who would come in with the testimonial saying, you know, I'm cured and, mm-hmm. and all of this come sort of in thing. And leave. Yep. Cured. Yep. yep. And or he, maybe an Australian cricketer or, you know, <laughs> some celebrity. Yeah, yes. take my vitamin and you will be forever healthy. Yeah. Hello to all the lawyers out there. And <laughs> um, and um, and he'd come into town and he'd take orders and uh, sell his bottle of ointment and, um, and, of course, move on before those who had bought it had any chance to... Um, get redress never because to come back. inevitably this thing wouldn't work never to come back yeah. never to return is, um, that, is that true though inevitably inevitably it wouldn't work because i thought part of i mean part of a whole lot of things we do in life we do based on our intuition so yep. we take certain tonics we rub certain creams in we take certain tablets based on intuition there's no evidence base that they work and the ones that become get called snake oils are the ones where everyone's cynical and sarcastic but inevitably no matter what we do a certain proportion of people will get better now it might be chance it might be the placebo effect. It might be that it actually works yeah. at some level. So did it, why, why do you say inevitably it wouldn't work? Well, well, that's going to be a nice little segue into the thing that loops us back to the legitimacy at the front end of the story. Just um, bear with me one second. Okay. I'm bearing. <laughs> so Stanley... I'm bearing down. Stanley, Stanley, I can do my screening test from that previous segment. Yeah. <laughs> Stanley Clark's um, um, snake oil, um, there was a famous moment at the Chicago World Fair, 1893, and he actually got a rattlesnake and he disemboweled it and he sucked it out and he and he made his oil in front of everybody and, and went down a treat um but it was investigated and the, it turned out that the actual bottles that he was selling were a combination of mineral oil red pepper turpentine mm. and camphor yeah. um with one percent fatty oil presumed to be beef fat 
All right. So he was a faker. As, well, yeah. and it went beyond that. It, not only was he determined to be a faker, um, he was actually taken to court, sued by the US government of wow. the day, um, and uh, fined $20. Right. But, Doolittle, you raise a yeah. real interesting point. So what do we know about um, snakes that might give us some kind of indication that there might be some merit to it? It's that they're cold-blooded, just like right. fish are, and they happen to have a high level of omega-3. And so omega-3 has resurfaced as a major matter for our you know, consideration yep. of where it fits in our diet and our well-being. Um, and so uh, people have, since the 1990s, started investigating the idea of omega-3. And it turns out, just to um, give you a sense of uh, perspective, the Chinese water snake oil, or the original... It actually has 20% EPA, which is one of two types of omega-3 fatty acids that is really high in comparison to a rattlesnake, which is just 8.5. So there's enough to suggest there that if omega-3 is digested in a particular way, it can be accepted into a diet that may actually have some of these anti-inflammatory type uh, properties. And which is why you can never be too cynical about any of these things because so many um, what you'd call evidence-based treatments had their... Um, origins in intuition-based treatments. Final comment there over there because we've got to finish up um, Dr Capri. Uh, so what's the moral of the story? To go to eat snakes? <laughs> is that what we're doing? No, the moral of the story is snake oil salesmen. Be careful, everyone. <laughs> yes. Be careful about the change. evidence. Yes. <laughs> Carefully about do you believe this based on your intuition or evidence. Hey, we're going to have to finish there um, because we have only 30 seconds left before we pass over to Einstein and Go-Go. So I'm going to speak at a 1,000 miles an hour. So bear with me. Thank you to Clara Gaff from Melbourne Genomics um, for coming in and telling us all about where the genetic revolution is up to. Don't forget you can follow us on Facebook's Radiotherapy on Triple R. You can always listen to our shows later on on Radio On Demand or you can jump on board for the podcasts. Thank you, Panel Beater and Capri, for coming in today as well. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.